It's wonderful to be back with you again this morning. Again, my name is James Madden. I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship, that's RUF, at Southern Methodist University. And I'm glad to be back with you. So we took a two-week break, and the, the nature of the title from Bios to Zoe is really unhelpful for unpacking what it is that we're actually going to be talking about. And so what I, I want to do is just briefly reiterate, in case you missed last time, what it is that uh, we talked about. And what we were talking about is what's called the boastful pride of life in First uh, John chapter 2, verse 16. It's bolded in your handout. The boastful pride of life and what that actually is and what it meant was by life is this idea of bios was the actual word, which just means the how and what of what you and I do in life. And that covers everything from material possessions to occupation to social standing all across the gambit. And that when you or I have a, an unjustified boasting or pride in that, what can tend to happen to us and how that actually can create uh, a very subtle and dangerous and heinous level of alienation from God that is so much more heinous perhaps even than the lust of the eyes or the desires of the flesh simply because of the fact that it t says to you and I that we are autonomous and independent from God. That if I have everything that I need and I have an, a an unjustified boasting or confidence in that, then I don't need God. And the moment that that settles into my heart is the moment that my heart begins to be closed towards the inbreaking work of God's love through the gospel. So it was a little bit of a diagnostic last week, and so this week, the Zoe part is much more to do with eternal life, and so that's where we're going to be turning our attention uh, this morning. I'm going to reread our text from 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So again, if I had two words to describe what bios is and what it creates in yours and my heart, they would be this one, independence, independence and accumulation, independence and accumulation. And when those two things come together in a boastful pride, I have set up a fortress of my own invincible, impregnable, surpassing colossal strength that no one anywhere can ever attack. And yet the alternative vision that's put forward that John does outstandingly throughout the letter of 1 John is this idea of life. It's eternal life, and it's qualitatively different. And so as we go, what's the life? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You've heard that many times, and I want to dive into what that means, because there's a common misconception that you or I can inevitably fall into, and it's this. I can think of eternal life as a golden ticket 
or passport into heaven. The way it goes is like this. It's, are you a sinner? Yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Would you like eternal life? Yes, I'll take that. Thank you. I'm going to put it in my pocket. Now I'm going on my way. We can treat it almost as if God gives us a little iPhone charge. And he says, here, come here. I know you're dying and you're struggling a little bit. Just plug in for a little bit. I'm going to give you the eternal Energizer Bunny battery pack. Then I want you to go out and make the most of your life. Whatever you can do, because you have eternal life in me. And I just don't think that that's what the Bible says. Now, I know none of you would explicitly articulate that and say that my eternal life is some sort of internal spiritual energizer bunny, but nevertheless, we have this knack for thinking, okay, I got my eternal life, I'm free. I can do what I want. I'm good. And there's something about that that's absolutely wonderful because we'd say, no, I don't want to die. I don't want to perish. Of course I want the eternal life. But we miss even what John is after. And here's what I believe that John is after, is the life that's being offered is Jesus. The life is Jesus. Eternal life and Jesus Christ cannot be separated from one another. If you look at the text in 1 John 5, and I have lots of different Bible texts for you to be able to reference. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever has the Son has life. Therefore, any person who has eternal life is directly related to, connected with, and cannot be separated from God which means that the foundation of our hope, the foundation of what is totally different from bios, this thing that makes me independent and separate and say, I don't need anybody, is the fact that I'm related and directly connected to God in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? It means that the source of my eternal life does not lead towards independence, but instead towards complete and total dependence. Not independence, but complete and total dependence. Another way of saying that is that salvation, eternal life, is personal. It's never impersonal. That the more and more I grow into the realities of who God is, the more and more, actually, I am filled with life, both today and in the time to come. Second aspect of it is that it's actually perpetual. I won't belabor the point too much, but when we compare this with bios, this idea of perishing, I don't need to tell you that our current stations in life and the things that we have are not going to be there eventually. You know, I heard the other day somebody say, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You don't see it. We're not in ancient Egypt. Nobody's building their pyramids and putting all their stuff in thinking that they're gonna FedEx it into the afterlife with them. In fact, it's lasting and eternal. So Jesus is after what's eternal. And then the last point, though, with that is that it's absolutely prosperous. That prosperity is associated with eternal life in Jesus. And how do I know this? Verse 14. The confidence that we have towards God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Anything. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. I get tremendous comfort out of that. 
Most of you here are in the business world, not all of you. And it is extremely hard to earn a buck. It's really tough. Now, I'm not in the business world. I talked to you a couple weeks ago about my slow venture into pressure washing and window washing. I can tell you 25 feet up on ladders, scrubbing windows in the 100 degree heat, no one's giving it away. It's not easy. So whether you're doing, engaged in what would be more like hands and manual labor work, or like most of y'all, you're sitting at a desk and you're using your mind and you're having to communicate effectively all day long, you know that there are no guarantees. You know that if you don't produce, that eventually you will be let go. You know that there's a condition upon you even being able to exist. And there is nobody that you go up to and say, may I have this? And they say, yes, take it as much as you need and more. And yet that's the condition of eternal life. The conditionality is, is when I align myself to Jesus Christ and I'm concerned with what God is concerned with, I can go with everything to God. So you see it, eternal life is personal, it's perpetual. There's an element of continuing and ever going prosperity. Maybe not the kind that you want, but again, we're talking about a qualitatively different type of life, aren't we? We're talking about something that is never, ever, ever going to weigh, and we're talking about something that is extremely and entirely personal and good for you and me. Now, how do we get there? That's kind of the way. If I just kind of laid out, we have this thing in this relationship, well, especially with you and I, that we can be so caught up in my own independence and sense of accumulation that I'm full of this boastful pride of life. The walls are up. I don't need anybody or anything. And I, I believe that Scripture provides a direct answer to this, and that is, you can see from Philippians chapter 2, and he even says this, Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meaning to, if somebody is a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, this is how, this is what you have today. This is how you can think about and process life. If you're not a Christian, then you can look at it from the outside and say, okay, how does a Christian actually process what to do with, let's say, an over-accumulation, an over-unjustified sense of self-esteem? What is it? What, how can you look at this? And what the answer is, is in verse 7, is that though Jesus did not, was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this idea. The idea behind it is called kenosis. You don't need to remember that, but I just want you to know it is a real thing. It's a big thing within Christian theology. And the idea that God actually, status of God, Trinity, the epitome of the good and perfect life. If Jesus doesn't have bios in that sense, but if you were to imagine somebody who just had everything and had no needs whatsoever, it says that he did not account equality with God, his status with God, the thing to be grasped, but instead viewed it in terms of something to be poured out, a pouring out. So the direct response then to you and I 
who are caught up in this sense of, I, I want this stuff and I've got it. I'm holding it so, so tightly. I'm so closed up. As it says, for those of you who have the mind of Christ Jesus, look at what Jesus Christ did, who, though he was gotten in the form of God, he did not take that as something to be hoarded or held onto, but instead poured himself out and gave himself out. Whew. He gave himself out. What happens when you pour yourself out? What can go wrong when you start to loosen the grip and just let things go? Well, you certainly can lose control. You certainly don't have a sense of being able to count all of your things and take, being able to project and say, well, if I have this stuff and I'm just giving it away, well, what's going to happen to me? I'm just going to be left in the dark. I'm going to be left with nothing. You can feel the tension. You can feel the risk in that. But there's something else that can happen that I directly, I believe that God does this. When he calls us to pour ourselves out, what he's doing is, is he's opening up our attention and our heart to receive something far greater. I'd like to read you a story about a father taking his kids on a walk through the woods. Here, you can listen along and see. Apparently, my nine-year-old son, Jackson, is a mystic in the making. As we walked a path along the River Thames as it leaves Oxford, England, my two oldest children and I enjoyed one of those quiet spells that occur when you've walked far enough away from your daily world to feel truly alone with your thoughts. My moments of solitude were preoccupied with cursing the new sneakers that were slowly rubbing holes on both feet, but something sparked a different order of thought in Jackson. After a half hour of quiet, he turned to me and he said that taking a long walk into the woods, listen to this, is like opening the envelope of your soul, an envelope that is usually sealed up tight. Opening the envelope of your soul. Is your soul open to receive God? What happens, what happens when we've got a God all around us offering us eternal life and I'm just so closed up? Perhaps it's not even that I'm closed up and that I'm hostile towards God. Perhaps it's just that my envelope is so stuffed tight with so many other things that there's no room. Open the envelope. When I think about our context and our demographic, the greatest danger that I see at this church, in this community, growing up here, living in it, is that our envelopes are packed so tight. I heard Mark Davis, do you know who Mark Davis is? I, I heard Mark talk about this on a sermon a number of years ago. And he was talking about his relationship as the, he was the youth pastor for a number of years before he became senior pastor. And in a very impassioned sermon, he said, I've spoken with your kids and they have everything. They don't want God. 
Now I'm paraphrasing a little bit, so if you go back and check the tapes. No appetite. There's no appetite. It's not that the stuff, it's just the deadening comfort of 72 degrees and air-conditioned seats and like, man, this feels good. Have you ever ridden in a car with air-conditioned seats? It's pretty nice. Something about it that makes you feel like life's going to be just fine when you go 100 degrees outside. It's one of my favorite features of modern life. I don't have it, but if you do, <laughs> I appreciate it. The story goes on. He says this, he says, to explain further, he said, it gives you a chance to concentrate. This is, again, being quiet in the woods. And then he stopped himself and he said, no, that's not quite right. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. When you're out here, you're not really concentrating even though your mind is working. It's like you're aware of important things without even having to try. Your envelope is opening. Then he goes on to say, my first thought and response was this, and yet you can't remember to put your dirty clothes in the laundry basket. It's a good dad. My second thought was I need to get little Thoreau here a journal, a quill, an inkwell, and a little cabin by a pond just to see what else he might come up with. His out-of-the-blue metaphor has stuck with me ever since our walk. In it, I hear the nine-year-old stirrings of something like contemplative prayer, the kind of prayer that occurs when we empty the self, open our envelope, and turn a patient, attentive gaze outward, finally prepared to receive the light of God, which is always shining. A young boy's surprise and pleasure at being opened up to something beyond himself reminds us that we are made for this kind of communion with God. If you haven't gone on a silent retreat with this church, or ever gone on a silent retreat in general, I would highly recommend it. Something that causes you, that enables you to just get out. To open up your mind, to open the envelope, to let everything flow out, and just to sit there and wait, because God is there. Jesus Christ is life, and he's ready and willing and desirous that you would be filled to abundance. Jesus came that we would have life, and we would have it abundantly. He came that we'd have life, and that we would have it abundantly. So there's a risk that I'm putting forward to you, because y'all are, y'all are smart. Y'all can calculate the risk. You know what it is. This comes from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What profit, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Isn't that what we're doing? Aren't we, when I, we're sitting here, we're weighing the two and saying, air-conditioned seats. I'm looking around, I, things are they're pretty great. 
and we're running the numbers. We're thinking through it and saying, gosh, this is pretty good. I, th I know it's not going to last, but it might. What happens then if I, if I start to let go, if I open my hands a little bit? What happens to this other thing? Is God going to show up? Will God be there? Will Jesus be there? Is it real? Is it just a, a fanciful thing? Is it a self-help guide? And I'm here to tell you today that it's real. And it's worth it. And that the life of Jesus Christ far surpasses any possible joy because they are just tiny glimpses of a greater fullness that's waiting for you. I promise. And I understand that saying that to you is going to be, maybe feel like jumping into the deep end and it feels a little bit crazy. I uh, had the opportunity to go to Belize a couple times and I'll never forget going to Shark Alley. I don't know if you've ever been around sharks and I thought we were just going to chum the water and see all the sharks swim around us and I'll never forget when the driver said we pulled up there's sharks all around us and he just said okay jump in and I just was like no this goes against every conceivable fiber in my being to jump in the water with sharks Everything I've ever been taught, everything I've seen on Shark Week, everything I've learned from Jaws tells me that this is the absolute worst decision that I could ever make. And yet, he said, jump. Jump. So I did. It was the greatest thing I think I've ever done. Little exaggeration. It was amazing. They were nurse sharks. Couldn't even bite you. This great fear that I thought I was going to die or have nothing. It, it was rewarded. It was, it was in excess of anything I could have ever imagined. There was, again, this overflowing sense of, wow, this is amazing. Do you not see that, that is, that's what Jesus is offering us? And we look at it and we say, that's death. Those are sharks. And Jesus is saying, come on in. The water's great. There's life here. That's what I want for all of you. I want you to have something more. I want you to have more. Because underneath it all, I think what we all really want when we think about the boastful pride of life is we want glory. We want something that matters. We want our lives and everything about us to be of such weight and of such consequence that everything we do has eternal significance. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory means that everything you do has significance. Imagine a celebrity. Celebrity sneezes and it's on the news. Celebrities have glory. 
Imagine politicians that get on the TV screen. We care what they say. They have glory. Their glory doesn't touch God's glory. And one of those glories is being open to be shared. And the very nature of Jesus, the very nature of God is that he is a sharing and a giving God and that he pours out his glory to everyone. And so you have this longing to have a life that matters, to be someone of consequence, to be of high station, and Jesus is giving it to you. And it's even saying that today, that when we are in Jesus Christ, when we have that life, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. You are being changed. We are being changed more and more. And we are going to have even more and more consequent lives. Everything you do matters. Everything you do matters. Because underneath even, or with, I should say, the freedom or the glory is an idea of freedom. Is that we want to be free from the things that hamper everybody else in life. The boastful pride of life says, I don't have to worry about all of those other things that other people experience. I'm free to do what I want. And when you've got eternal life, we're talking about freedom of an entirely different magnitude. We're talking about freedom from death. Forget my car breaking down and having money in the account. Dying. Dying. So I hold these two out to you, and you can discuss it at your table. As someone who just air-conditioned seats, I love them. And then on the other hand, know that there is this eternal weight of life that is being offered. And I would ask you, you've got questions below that you can begin to wrestle with. Feel free to disagree with them, push back. But thank you for your time. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for the gift that it is in you, Jesus. I pray that you would open the envelopes of our soul, that we might be able to receive your love, that we could look at the cross as the ultimate demonstration of that love and glory being poured out to us, and that we might then pour it out and share it with others. It's in your name we pray. Amen.